Hey, well, it's so good to see you. My name is Christian, if I'm not uh, met you. I'm a vicar, yes, I do other things as well. And today we start a new series called Creep. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 says this. Watch your life and what you believe. From uh, ancient times, Christian people have used words to describe what they believe. And those words matter because what you believe matters. And as we'll see in this series, although being a Christian is, is about a living relationship with God based on love and forgiveness on knowing God through his spirit, it is also vitally described with words. Now, of course, the most important words are in the Bible, and we'll be looking back in a few weeks' time, the importance of those words. But people following Jesus have historically, for several thousand years, used carefully thought-out words to define and describe who they are in God, what they believe, why they believe it, and what those beliefs mean for the life that they live out in society. Now let me give you some examples of this. The first example is a catechism. Don't worry if you haven't heard of it. But a catechism is a set of learnt questions and answers that set out some basic ideas about God. And in times of old, if you were going to be baptised, or you were a parent, you would use a catechism. So a baptism candidate would learn the catechism with their sponsor, and parents would train their children to know the catechism uh, off by heart. Uh, Another form of, of these words is a confession. And confessions are like uh, catechisms. They set out usually uh, more thoroughly, but with logically and systematically beliefs and ideas about God. So, for example, there's a famous one, the Westminster Catechism uh, Confession of Faith says this. Question, what is the chief aim of man? Answer, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, some of these catechisms run to encyclopedic uh, science. You know, it's, if you have trouble sleeping, it's, it's kind of bedtime uh, reading. It's kind of genius stuff to work through some of those. Another example is a doctrinal basis. They were really popular in the 1980s. Every cool church had a doctrinal basis. Usually it was on a leaflet and it was there on the welcome desk. So people, presumably coming to church, could just check carefully through every line. Do they believe in the, uh, the this of God and the this of the Holy Spirit? And presumably you checked all that before you set foot um, in the door. Uh, I know if I go to speak at a university, I'll always be asked to sign a doctrinal basis before some new student lets me preach. If I'm in an awkward mood, sometimes I'll quiz the student about the exact and precise meaning of the words that they have chosen to ask me to sign before I can speak at their CU. But enough of my uh, hobbies and interests. (laughs) And, And lastly, in terms of these forms of words that people have used to define their faith, are creeds. Uh, and, and the Latin word is credo. So from that we get the English word creed. It means belief. 
Uh, and this is the title for our series. And creeds are the oldest and probably the most impactful sets of words that have been used by people following Jesus to try and describe and define who they are and what they believe. Uh, theologian Tom Wright says this, uh, that the ideas that we have in creeds are like theological suitcases. What we do is we collect whole loads of ideas, perhaps from many different places in the Bible, and we bring them together and we put them in this theological suitcase and then we refer to it by a shortened form of words. So we might say, for example, as we do in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. Now that's a great statement, but actually there's a ton of ideas and thinking and verses and passages in the Bible that sit behind and underneath that statement. It stands as a summary of many things. Um, Theologian Kevin Vosenhuber says this, the creeds are the grammar of our faith. So they might not be sexy and, you know, exotic, but actually the creeds have helped Christian people through hundreds of years to align and to template and to frame and to map out what they believe about God. If you go into an old Anglican church, uh, then most of them will still have, uh, beside the communion table, on the left, the Ten Commandments, in case you forgot them, and then on the right, the Apostles' Creed. I think it was in 1532 or something, there was an edict. Every church had to have those, lest people forgot the faith that they believed in. In fact, on Friday, I was at the appointment of a friend in Starbeck near Harrogate. He was becoming a vicar of a church. And before he could receive his license to be the vicar of the church, he had to affirm in front of the congregation his affirmation of the historic Christian creed of the church. When I got ordained, I had to do the same. I had to put my hand on a Bible and swear that I affirmed the historic creeds of the church. Now, I think creeds are as important to us now as they have been in times past. In fact, probably creeds are even more important now because we live in a world so full of ideas and convictions and truths that are being broadcast to us. According to the television that I watched last night, I'm being asked to believe that expensive yoghurt is going to make me feel less bloated. (laughs) That Volvo make the best and safest cars in the world, and they're definitely worth the extra money that you might pay to own a Volvo. And that Donald Trump is going to make America great again. (laughs) And actually, everyone believes Every person, every living human being, believes in things. It might be uh, hard work, or karma, or they believe in the new iPhone 7, or beer, or money, or status, or themselves, or football, or fast cars, or loose women, or saving the planet, or low-fat yoghurt, or world peace, or the list goes on. But actually, everyone has beliefs and convictions that are shaping and moulding their lives. So if you're a believer, 
or you're thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to believe in him, isn't it really important that you know and can say what you believe? Now, heads up, we're going to do a whole series on this next time. So if you're panicking and think I'm going to be asking you questions at the door, no, we're going to all learn about that next term together. But this is so important. Now, these historic creeds that I've referred to, I'd love to tell you that um, they all came about when a group of people just sat in the room, silent prayer, and then just like, they just sort of wrote it, and it was just like, ba-ding, oh look, we've got a creed, it's just fallen from heaven into the lap of the church and now we go forward together. The reality is nearly all of them have got a colourful story about how they came about, including the big four, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Chalcedonian Creed, which is Matt's favourite apparently, and the Athanasian Creed, my favourite. I'm going to put them all on Facebook for you to read this week, so don't worry if you haven't read them. They're absolute crackers. You're going to love them. Let me tell you about the Nicene Creed. The story starts in 325 and it involves a local boy, Emperor Constantine the Great, who was crowned Emperor here in York. His statue is just outside my office window round the corner. And he convened 250 quarrelling bishops in Nicaea, in present-day Turkey, to discuss the matters of faith that were under discussion of his time. And there was a bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, not a great name, but he was lecturing on the theological mystery of the Holy Trinity. And during his lectures, he got interrupted by a presbyter called Arius, who accused Alexandra of committing the heresy of modalistic monarchianism. Now, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) And modalistic monarchianism, I know you all know what it is, but just if there's one person here who possibly doesn't know what modalistic monarchianism is, it was one of the early church's heresies. And it was was, kind of like a, a belief in who God is without the idea of trinity. That, that God sort of existed in different modes, sort of like a three-faced, single God. And so um, Arius publicly confronted Alexandra and started putting forward his views about who God is. Unfortunately, Arius then went into a new heresy that's named after him, the Arian heresy. He said this, If the father begat the son... Then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this it follows that there was a time when there wasn't a son of God. In effect what he was saying is, um, Jesus is like this incredible messenger from God. But because he's kind of connected with God, actually at some point God must have made him. And so although Jesus is clearly greater than us... He is less than God. So the Father is the true God. The Jesus is in between. Sorry, I shouldn't be saying this with passion because it's a heresy. Okay? Don't, <laughs> dreadful, dreadful. Don't believe this. So Arius so believed this heresy, which was that God made Jesus, which is not true. Okay. When I rehearsed it, it was, it was better. Okay. <laughs> Christianity almost floundered on this point, on this debate 
and the discussion. And if you've ever read church history or you know some theology, then you'll know it, it, it was on just two words. Is, the, is Christ of homoousios, the same substance of God, or is he homoiousios, the same word with just an extra letter, an iota in there, similar substance to God? Now you might think, oh, this is just so boring and academic. But in, in the city where this was being debated, this was hot stuff. People were killed in the streets over disagreements on this item of doctrine. If you went shopping, your butcher or your baker or your greengrocer would have had an opinion about this. So as you walked into your local bakery, the, the baker might have said to you, um, is the father altogether greater and more supreme than the son? And then you'd have to give your answer. And if, if you gave the wrong answer, you didn't get any croissants that day. Because <laughs> this was important to everyone. Well, Constantine called a second uh, gathering of bishops to follow up on this. Uh, 1,800 bishops were attended to the Second Council, uh, which was in 381, and each bishop was allowed to bring two presbyters and three slaves. Oh dear, a whole other sermon about that. Two presbyters, three slaves. And Constantine invited Arius to be present um, and to listen to the discussion that happened. There are five accounts of what happened there, and all five of them say that during the discussion amongst the bishops, Arius interrupted and started to present his own views. But he did it through music and chant. This was a wild boy. He, he like, had decided not only did he have some great ideas, he would set them to song so that everyone could hear them like in a different way and everyone could remember you know, the snappy tunes of his heresies uh, that he mapped out. And it wouldn't have been a guitar, but it would have been something and chants. And anyway, these accounts say the bishops that, that didn't agree with him, um, they, they were appalled, they closed their eyes, they put their hands in, fingers in their ears and they hid under the tables. So they're like putting their fingers in their ears going, la, 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 like, yes, you're talking, but we're not listening, we're not listening. This, this was colourful and passionate stuff. According to legend, St Nicholas was so enraged, Arius, that he walked across the room and punched him in the face. <laughs> it's probably not true, but it's, it, it, the story is much better for including it in there. Anyway, the resolution of this heated and passionate debate of its time was the crafting of the Nicene Creed, which apart from some minor tweaks along the way, is the same creed that exists in the churches today. And this group also uh, set out the date of Easter and also debated whether clergy could get married and all sorts of other things. This was a, this was a gathering point of the church to decide what words define what they believe. Well, what do creeds do? Let me just give you a few quick ideas and then there's something practical for you to do as well. The first is this, I think creeds establish doctrine. They, they, they map out those theological suitcases. They collect together a whole load of different ideas uh, and they um, um, allow us to hang those beliefs and commitments on a set of words. 
So, for example, in the Anglican Church, in its, in its confessional creed, it says that the Bible contains everything necessary to our salvation and that the Nicene Creed, the one that we've just heard about, becomes a sufficient statement of Christian faith. Secondly, I think they deal with the controversial issues, which was in that example, Arius and Alexandria, and their different opinions about who is Jesus? Who is he? One person says one thing, one person says another thing. The creeds often resolve those questions. The third thing is actually what the creeds prove to do is that they spread vision. Because actually following each of these synods where these creeds got written, usually the church grew and thrived because Christian people with renewed passion had confidence in what they believed and that they believed it together. And so they also brought unity, they brought people together. And so although, for example, the Nicene Creed is a very heated story, what it actually did was brought Christian people together in united uh, following of Jesus. And the last thing is to do is that they spoke into the issues of the day. And that's actually really important. Because actually, when I swore about the creeds when I got ordained, I wasn't asked to say that I believed them today for what the word said. I was asked to affirm them. And that, the reason for that is actually every creed that's been written, and there are lots of them, stands at a point in time and speaks into the issues of the day. So in today, we don't particularly debate who is Jesus, because we can all go on Alpha and listen to Nicky Gumbel explain it to us. Um, but partly that stands on the fact that in Nicaea they had uh, a synod and they discussed it and came to an answer. But in every generation there are controversial or, or unresolved questions. And this idea of creed, words that say what we believe, is incredibly important to mapping that out. Well, we're going to do a bit of work, and I'm going to give you a few minutes. You maybe want to find the bit of paper on your uh, chair that says Creed. You should have a pen uh, or uh, something to write with. And we're going to capture some of our... What, what are your ideas um, about creeds? Now, we are not 2,000 bishops in a room um, singing songs, uh, so... It may take us a bit longer to come up with a page turner like the Nicene Creed. But I reckon all of us have something to pull out in words about what we believe. Or it may be something that we as a church ought to um, together be framing into words about what we believe. Um, a quick shout out, I, I timed a post to go on Facebook now. Uh, and so what I'd love you to do is not just to write on your bit of paper, but if you get a cracker, and if you, get, if you think, wow, I've come up with a really good one, um, then stick it on Facebook in the comments and let's collect together all of the ones um, that we have um, together. Okay, I'm going to get you to talk to the person next to you in a minute. Let me tell you what I did. I did this exercise this morning. I thought, right, what, what will I write on my words? So this is, this is what I wrote on my bit of paper this morning. I believe that church should be an adventure. That everyone should get to be involved and play in church. I believe that Jesus is the answer, but he's not everybody's question. I believe I'm a better person when I pray. 
I believe you can worship God using any style of music. I believe in decent coffee, going big with Alpha, in church planting, and Tim Hughes. Okay. I'll tell him you said that. Um, So, okay, I'm sure you can do better than I just did. Some of you I know are cracking wordsmiths. And also between us, we will have different areas of focus. So we're going to spend uh, four minutes to do this. You might want to do it on your own if you're a mega introvert. You might want to talk to a person next to you. That's fine. You're not writing an essay, but you might maybe writing a sentence or maybe start with a word. So let's see how we do. Off you go. You've got four minutes and then we'll hear back from you. This isn't really a talk that comes into land that we go, yeah, tick, agree with what's said. I kind of just want to raise how incredibly important it is that we know the words that describe our faith. And it matters because what you believe matters. What you believe in detail affects the life that you will live out, affects the big choices that you will make, affects what you want your life to be about and what you will give your time and your effort and your energy and your heart to. If, if we don't have words that define our creed, then we can have a passionate faith in God, but it has danger of just being floaty and, and vacuous or fragile and easily squashed or moulded by television or other ideas in society, easily knocked down or discouraged or dissuaded. In my experience, the more I'm clear about what I believe, the bolder and more passionately I live my life for following Jesus. Uh, And um, the words of the creed help bring people together. So it's not just that Uh, what I believe and what you believe but there's incredible power in what we believe together 